end. Three short verses today. And, uh, but three very significant uh, verses. John 13, verses 36, 37, and 38. And uh, let's read those. Uh, open your Bibles to John. If you don't have one, they are uh, in the uh, handout. Hear God's word. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all of the many blessings it brings to us and how it teaches us. Thank you that you have real people in it with real problems and issues and sins so that we might see your grace. We pray that you would enable us to see your grace this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. A lot of you have a rap and hip-hop playing in the car this morning as you drove to church. Uh, besides Mark Rist. Not a whole lot. He gave me that knowing look. The, uh, how many of you are familiar with the rap star Kanye West? All right. Dave's a big fan in the back. Okay, pretty much sort of 25 and under picked up there. A few others who are hipper than the rest of us. How many of you have even heard of Kanye West? Okay, got some more. That's good. Last winter at the MTV Europe Music Awards, and if you missed it, talk to Mark. He taped it. He's a big hip-hop fan. Um, Kanye West was named the best hip-hop artist, but he came off as a sore loser because he was very disappointed at not winning the award for Best Video. So much so that while they were handing that award out, he crashed the stage on live TV. It was taking place in Copenhagen, Denmark, and uh, the award's being presented to somebody else, and he ran on the stage and grabbed the mic away. And in a tirade, just riddled with words you don't say in church, Kanye said he should have won the prize for his video, Touch the Sky. He says, because it cost a million dollars, Pamela Anderson was in it, and I was jumping across canyons. And if I don't win, the awards lose credibility. In 2004, this same guy, he's a three-time Grammy Award-winning artist, so it's not that he doesn't have talent. He wrote the catchy hit, Jesus Walks. And shortly after that, went to the top of the charts. Rolling Stone magazine had him on the cover 
wearing a crown of thorns with the title, The Passion of Kanye West. And if that wasn't bad enough, the suburban rapper's latest theological lunacy includes a call for us to revise the Bible to include him in it. He feels he should be in it. His illogic is that he would be a fitting griot, that's a West African storyteller, in a modern Bible, and with pride that would make Satan blush. He says, I've changed the sound of music more than once, and for these reasons I'd be part of the Bible. I'm definitely in the history books already. And what I thought was most curious is the fact that with all that Kanye has already achieved, and he's achieved a great deal, the highest honor that he can think of is being like Jesus and being in the Bible. Why? I mean, even if you're as lost as Dick Cheney in the brush, I mean, deep down... We all know Jesus is the most supreme person who's ever lived, and the Bible is the most supreme book that's ever been written. And therefore, without even knowing it, and I think even intending it, Kanye's desire to be like Jesus, to be in the Bible, is in some ways sort of a twisted honor to achieve the one thing that he cannot achieve on his own. And that's glory. I was reading that story and I was thinking, you know, Kanye West is a somewhat a 21st century version of Peter. Loud, arrogant, presumptuous, speaking without thinking, of course, without Peter's self-control. And most importantly, without Peter's understanding and acceptance of Christ, which is what kept Peter from going full speed down the trail of ego and selfishness, a trail which has seemingly come to own Kanye West. Kanye is going to come to remind us of another person in John who lacked Peter's understanding and acceptance of Christ. But for now, we'll focus on Peter. The Gospels are full of the Apostle Peter. No disciple spoke as often as Peter. Our Lord addressed him more than any of his other followers. No disciple was reproved by Jesus as much or as strongly as Peter was. He was also the only disciple who thought it was his duty to reprove Jesus. And he was impulsive one of those souls who acted first and thought afterwards. And yet no disciple uh, had ever so boldly confessed and encouraged Christ. And yet none ever bothered our Lord as much as he did. Christ spoke with words of approval and praise and blessing to Peter, the likes of which he had never spoken to any other man. At the same time, and almost in the same breath, he said sterner things to Peter than he ever said to any of the other 12 disciples, including Judas. 
in all four lists of the apostles given in the Gospels, the order of the names varies, but Peter's is always first. And Judas's name is always last. The Gospels testify to Peter's primacy. He was first among equals. Peter was always talking, and his words ranged from the ridiculous to the sublime. As I said, I think last week, sometimes Peter only opened his mouth to change feet. And yet at other times, his words were priceless. In answer to Christ's question as to who he was, we have Peter's immortal response in Matthew 16. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And yet a few moments later, when Christ spoke of the cross, we read, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Brilliant confession, bumbling confusion. At the same time, in the same conversation, that was Peter. Often, that is us. We see that in Peter's life over and over and over again, and we see it today in our text at the end of John 13. So let's dive in and see what it says. We start with verse 36 and a question. There's a question in each one of these verses that form the outline for these verses. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Now, I mentioned this verse last week when we see Peter asking Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Peter still doesn't understand what Christ is telling them. His concern, which is implied but not asked, is, Lord, why are you leaving us? We've left everything to follow you. Why are you going? Because for Peter, intimacy with Christ was far more attractive than obedience to Christ. And without obedience to him, there can be no intimacy with him. And Jesus tries to reassure Peter by telling him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And he's saying, Peter, when I have finished my preparations for you, and when I finish my preparation of you, then you will come with me. But that time hasn't arrived yet. And to make the point even more clearly, that obedience is directly related to the command of Christ, which we saw in verses 34 and 35, which immediately precede today's passage. There, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And the point of these verses is not developed in detail because Peter interrupts to pick up the thread of the Lord's statement earlier about his imminent departure. The disciples are less interested in the new commandment than this threatened departure of their master. Just as in our day, many Christians are far more interested in scenarios of the Lord's second coming than they are in loving one another. But here Jesus says, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. There is a darkness that's about to befall our Savior. And he says to Peter, you cannot follow me now. There is a place where I am going that you cannot follow, but you'll follow after. 
and Peter will. And as we turn to Acts, we see what happens to Peter, this Peter who will deny Jesus three times, who will uh, be so overcome by fear that in a few hours from uh, this passage, when Jesus is arrested and he's in the courtyard and a young girl recognizes his northern Galilean accent, he's down in Jerusalem, this is easy to do, Galilee's in the north, Jerusalem is in the south, southerners always know when a Yankee comes down, amen? And so she says, you too are one of the disciples. And he will curse and swear that he has never known Jesus. But this Peter will turn. This Peter will change. This Peter will repent. This Peter on the opening pages of Acts will become a thundering voice for truth and for godliness and for Jesus. And his mouth cannot be stopped. And even though he will be imprisoned, he will say, we must obey God rather than man. This Peter will be crucified upside down on that road that leads out of Rome, upside down at his own request because he uh, felt himself so unworthy to be compared to his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Scripture doesn't tell that story, but church history does. But that day hasn't come yet. Now we have the old Peter, the questioning Peter, the Peter with the big mouth who says, why can I not follow you? Verse 37, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. This is vintage Peter. What do you mean I can't follow you? I'll lay down my life. The whole good shepherd thing, you know, that you talked about in John 10, I'll do that. And that's not the first time Peter was presumptuous. Now, Peter meant what he said. Unlike Kanye, he's not a braggart. I'm sure if the Romans had come in right then, he would have barred the door or drawn his sword. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Peter has a problem. Peter's presumption came partly from his shallow understanding of what it means to follow Christ and partly from an inflated estimate of his own abilities. Following Christ is probably the the most difficult challenge in our lives. It requires far more than natural human determination or ability. It requires the life of Christ in us. And Peter did not know that yet in its fullness. But that's not all uh, there was to Peter. He also had a great love for Jesus, and he couldn't bear the thought of being separated from him. And so once again, we're back to Peter. Once again, he's opening his mouth to change feet, and he blurts out, Why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus hits him with the sharp edge of reality by asking, will you lay down your life for me? Verse 38. Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Jesus is asking him, essentially, who, after all, is laying down his life for whom here? You know, but as I study these verses, and and whenever we teach uh, the Bible, one of the things we say is context 
is everything. You have to look at the whole context to really understand what's going on. And it's clear as I look at John 13 that one of the central interests in the prediction of Peter's betrayal in these verses, especially in the context of Jesus' prediction of Peter's betrayal coming right after, hard on the heels of his prediction of Judas's betrayal. We have two traitors here, two betrayals. And for most observers, there isn't a great deal to distinguish one from the other. Both men stabbed the Lord in the back. Both men had no excuse whatsoever. Both men were overcome by remorse after doing what they had done. Both betrayals are predicted by the Lord beforehand in the upper room. But what we know is one man went to hell and the other went to heaven. One man never saw the Lord Jesus again, and the other man was honored with a private conference with Jesus on the day of his resurrection. One man died by his own hand soon after his crime. The other man lived a long and extraordinarily fruitful life and died violently at the hands of others as a Christian martyr, finally fulfilling that proud boast he had so foolishly made that night in the upper room. One traitor's name has lived forever in infamy. The other became one of the most celebrated and sacred names in history. We use one name as a slur and brand our enemies with it. We give the other name to our sons. If there is anything so obvious in the comparison of these two men, Judas and Peter, a comparison forced upon us by the juxtaposition, that means they're put next to each other, of these two predictions of betrayal, one following the other in chapter 13, it is that there is a universe of distance between two men who behave in very similar ways. Indeed, at the moment of their betrayal of the Lord, these two men, for different reasons to be sure, would have appeared to, be, to any observers as far more alike than different. In fact, we may have even thought better of Judas than Peter because Peter's betrayal was pure cowardice on his part. Judas apparently had some reason of financial or political gain to justify what he did. People might have said that Judas shouldn't have done what he did, but he felt strongly that, or he was compelled to bring an end to Jesus' program because, whereas Peter's just yellow. Now, there's a powerful powerful irony here in this paragraph. The Lord begins to speak of the love of his followers for one another as the true manifestation of faith in him and as a means of persuading the world of the truth about him and the truth about salvation. In other words, we are prepared to hear that Christians will be very different from the world. So different, in fact, that the world will sit up and take notice and be forced to ask where this wonderful difference comes from. But the words about brotherly love are scarcely out of the Lord's mouth when he must bring Peter down to earth by predicting that before the night is over, Peter will disown him three times. That's exactly what happens. Jesus is betrayed by Judas. He's arrested, put on trial. Peter's trying to get close to Jesus. People confront him. Peter denies Christ three times. 
and then the rooster crows. Luke 22. And then the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now, there isn't anything uh, all that otherworldly, all that different about cowardice and betrayal. The world isn't going to wonder by what power and what divine gift men will tell lies to save their own skins. They're familiar enough with that already. It's the stuff of ordinary life in this world. It needs no special explanation. No one is going to fall at his feet and worship Christ because he's surrounded by a bunch of cowards. And ever since, that's how it's gone for believers. Since the first day the church has been summoned to live this life of supernatural love, she has also had to be rebuked for failing to do so. And to be sure, ever since, the church has, in many ways, lived a wonderful life of love in Christ's name. And yet, at the same time, ever since, she has always failed to love one another as Christ loved her. It's still the same. Even today, Christians truly and heroically love one another and unbelievers as well and at one and the same time betray the Lord by either ignoring or positively devouring one another. Richard Swenson is a uh, medical doctor. Christian has a book called Why Do Christians Shoot Their Wounded? There's enough truth there that you can't just... Ignore it. So what are we to make of this powerful picture in John 13 of Christian living so high and beautiful a life on one hand and so pathetically inept and undistinguished on the other hand? Or of a new commandment that will change the world, but as well of a Peter who looks very much like a Judas? Well, in these verses, Jesus is essentially telling Peter, No, Peter, you're not ready. You won't die for me now. In fact, you're going to fail me. You will deny me. You will disown me. Not once, but three times. And it will break you and your treasure of self. And then I can prepare you. Then you'll be ready. Then you won't deny me or disown me. And yes, then you will die for me. And indeed, one trying day in the years ahead, Peter would do just that. But that's another Peter. Peter was not nearly so confident of his own abilities and his own courage. A Peter who had entered more fully into an understanding of the ways of his Lord. A Peter who had been disciplined and prepared through years of loving and serving others as he loved and served Christ. But that day is in the future. Right now... Peter looks a little bit like Judas. He looks quite a bit like Kanye West. And he looks an awful lot like us. So let's go back and finish where we started with our good friend Kanye. Why does an incredibly successful, obviously intelligent musician rap star like Kanye West 
embarrass himself before a live crowd of thousands of people and a broadcast audience of millions of people by grabbing an award away from those who want it. Why would somebody do that? I mean, just ran on stage and grabbed the award away and everybody thought they were watching wrestling. The answer is, answer is multifaceted. It's idolatry and unbelief and a struggle to keep his reputation and appearance. I'm sure a lot of you might be tempted to amen what I'm saying without examining the motives of your own heart. Have you ever asked the question, why do I sin? Most of us will give the right Sunday school response. We miss the mark because we're sinners. And that's certainly true theologically, but can sound awfully cheap. Of course we sin because we're sinners, but pulling out our get-out-of-hell-free card doesn't help us when it comes to deep repentance and lasting change. To simply agree that you're a sinner is much like the person who, when caught doing something they know they shouldn't be doing, just blurts out, you know, I'm not perfect. So let me rephrase the question. Why specifically in this instance are you sinning in the way that you are? Or what is motivating you to do what you are doing? That's a more profound question. It requires us to, uh, that we think through how we've come to sin and what is the motivation behind it. What is the sin underneath the sin? What is the thing that we're hoping for and looking towards for our beauty, meaning, value, purpose, peace, joy, and satisfaction? What are the idols that we unearth in the process of tracing the chain of our sin to the source of our sin? And that can be really, really painful. But without such excavation, we're left as whitewashed tombs filled with inward death. Why do I do what I do? The answer is simple, but it's not simplistic. We are struggling for our own righteousness. I'm back to Kanye. The the rap game is one of reputation and appearance. It is an entire industry dominated by chest thumping with the militant demand of respect from your peers. It's not just a passing interest for those who consider themselves legit. It is the lifeblood of their endeavors. Their lyrics, videos, performances, demeanor is one of a hypersensitivity to disrespect and a hyper-ego which flexes its muscles to the masses to demonstrate that they are righteous. And it's as old as the first tenets of the garden who in that charge of sin was leveled against them at once shifted the blame for their actions on one another, God and the serpent. The snake told me, Lord, it was that woman you gave me. It's her fault, and if it's not her fault, it's your fault, but it's not my fault. And at the same time, they attempted to cover themselves by using fig leaves to hide their shame. And it's more than just a newfound embarrassment of nakedness before one another. It's an attempt to cover themselves from the holy eyes of God. 
And from Adam on, there resides in each of us the struggle to get and maintain our own righteousness. The struggle is an unbelieving struggle which seeks something other than Jesus for our acceptability. It's a struggle to make ourselves beautiful and worthy, a struggle to stave off the ever-encroaching feeling that our lives are vapor, lived in vain. It wells up from a heart of unbelief and therefore will cause us to continually fail and force us to keep struggling. There's no rest in this struggle because it's born from the sin of pride which assumes that we can gain a righteousness of our own. Kanye West is no different than any of us who continue to believe a false gospel of manufactured righteousness. He just gets to do it with more money. And the struggle for righteousness, which is expressed in the fight for reputation, is a brutal master which will never allow us to rest. This drive pushes us, beats us, wears us down, gives us no rest. It's a slavery that promises emancipation as at the same time it's slipping its shackles around our wrists and our ankles. I find it ironic that most within the rap industry are adamant that they are free to do what they want, act how they choose, live in a way they see fit while they rap about the freedoms that going platinum affords them. And their quest for acceptability, they wear the chains of their own slavery around their neck. Gold, silver, and platinum laced and iced from ear to wrist becomes the trophy of their struggle for righteousness. And it forces young men and women to bow down and serve these gods of bling. Much like a golden calf. And as much as I may dislike it, there is nothing new here. And that's why our struggle for reputation is often linked to our struggle for appearance. Our struggle to appear righteous before others, ourselves, and God is the cause for much of our own dishonesty as we lie to ourselves to pacify a uh, battled conscience that wants freedom from guilt and from shame. Why do we seek after the things we do? Why do we want so badly to succeed? Why would Kanye West commit such a major PR blunder like he did? There's something at work within him that cannot stand the thought of not being recognized as the absolute best at what he does. And his false Messiah has promised salvation to him if he'll only serve the master of success. And to appear righteous is to validate all the work demanded by your idol. Without the payoff of public approval... We're not just disappointed when we don't receive what we're hoping for. We're literally undone at the core. Isn't that success, reputation, and appearance important? Isn't that why they're important? Because they're everything to those who struggle for righteousness. Why are we so sensitive to criticism? Why are we so overwhelmed by failure? Why do we have to show off verbally and physically? Because our hope is to be saved by the righteousness that we attain to satisfy the God we worship. So what do we do? Well, since the struggle is not reserved for Kanye, but for all of humanity, including Christians who theologically agree that salvation comes by grace alone, but in practice deny it. In other words, Kanye's struggle is my struggle. His 
very public pursuit of righteousness is my not-so-public pursuit of righteousness. All of us would like to be able to attain our own righteousness. And there's hope for those of us who are zealous but often don't live in line with the knowledge we claim. Turn to Romans 10. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Did you hear that? Christ is the end of all this. He's the end of our struggle for our own righteousness since he alone fulfilled the law for us. If we get Christ's righteousness, we don't have to struggle for our own righteousness. Joy Davidman, many of you know, is the wife of C.S. Lewis. She put in one of her books, the only way to get rid of sin is to admit it, for without honest repentance, forgiveness and grace are impossible. The Christian does not go around all the time feeling guilty. For him, sin is a burden he can lay down, for he can admit it, repent, and be forgiven. It is the unfortunate creature who denies the existence of sin in general and his own in particular who must go on carrying it. The way to freedom consists in honest confession and repentance that can open our hearts to the comforter. So why is it so difficult to acknowledge that we are sinners and need a Savior? Because it means we must let go of our own struggle for righteousness, which is the very thing we think is promising our salvation. How can we be clothed in the righteous robes of Christ when we're still wearing our fig leaves? Our struggle for righteousness is over if we have trusted in Christ and in his perfect righteousness. He has become our reputation, our beauty, our lasting glory. He alone can grant the promise of salvation to a people who labor and are heavy laden under the burden of performing and maintaining a facade of righteousness. He alone is rest for our souls. He alone allowed his reputation to be destroyed, his outward beauty to be crushed, so that you and I no longer need to build a life on sand which rests upon our own performance. Kanye West isn't the only one who suffered from a lack of recognition for the work that he's performed. Yet instead of lashing out in anger and in and defense, we read in Acts 8 about Jesus, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. Jesus absorbed the ridicule and the shame of those crying out, Luke 23, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. Mankind created by Christ himself refuses to acknowledge the gracious work of the only true creator, sustainer, and redeemer. And the difference is that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, so that you and I who were once exiles can now come in and find our acceptability in the one who was exiled on our behalf. That's the difference for Jesus. But what is the difference for Peter and for Judas? There's a question. As you walk through Jerusalem that night, 
Jesus has, or Judas has already gone. He's already left to go do his dark deed to get his 30 pieces of silver. Supposing you were to bump into Judas, and then later in the night you're to bump into Peter. What's the difference between them? What's the difference between Judas and Peter? It's a good question because in a very real sense, the Apostle John is giving us these sort of cameo portraits of two of the disciples. And he's saying, you're either Judas or you're Peter. Do you understand that? You're either Judas or Peter. And in terms of our text, what this amounts to is our society's inability to distinguish to distinguish between them, between Judas and Peter, and far too often our own inability to distinguish between Judas and Peter, our own inability to identify the principles that separates these two betrayers as far as heaven is from hell. And what we're taught here, finally, is the greatest truths of all. All over again, there's the first truth. Sola Grazia. Salvation is by grace alone. No Christian, however close to Christ, and nobody was closer than Peter, merits his or her own salvation, has enough righteousness to have earned God's favor and eternal life. Peter is every Christian here in John 13. We've all betrayed the Lord. We have all succumbed thousands of times to foolishness and pride. We're always overestimating ourselves and underestimating our sin. And the difference between Peter and Judas is not that one man was a sinner and the other wasn't, or that one was a traitor and the other not. There wasn't, that, that's not the difference at all. They're both sinners. They're both betrayers. It wasn't the difference then. It's not the difference today. It's a question of whose righteousness are you trusting in? Your righteousness or Jesus' righteousness? That's the first truth, grace. There is a second truth, sola fide, through faith alone. It's never going to be the case that the gospel, the deity of Christ, the meaning of the cross, the power of the Holy Spirit, the standard by which all men will be judged at the last day will be demonstrated with mathematical certainty before the world. The Christian church has never and will never so live in this world in the true beauty of the Christian faith and the love that she can say and the world must agree that the church has, by her life, proved the gospel true, no questions asked. Because we just screw up way too much. And we are unloving way too much. And we fail Jesus way too much. I mean, as the command, it's unqualified. Love one another. And you've all done perfectly on that this week. Salvation will always be by faith. By believing things to be real and to be true that cannot be seen, at least not fully seen, this side of heaven. And then there's the third truth. Sola Christus. Salvation is in Christ alone. It's not in us. And there is found the difference between those who are saved and those who are lost. And there we find the difference between Peter and Judas. <coughs> the difference is Christ. 
This is the point which the entire chapter was introduced with all the way back in verse 1, which was like a month ago, where it said, having loved his own who were in the world, he, Jesus, now showed them the full extent of his love. And he got down and washed their feet. Here is the great difference seen in chapter 13. Judas was not in Christ, and Peter was. Christ had chosen Peter and not Judas. And because Christ chose him, Peter is brought back to Christ after his fall. He followed Christ in the days and the years that followed. He finally gave up his life for Christ, as long before in the upper room he had so foolishly boasted that he would. And these facts... Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Show us truth about this world and truth about this life. And they're known by the word of God alone. You know, I read this story and I read about these people and I have grown to love Peter because I am so much like him. And I have grown to hate Judas because I am so much like him. And the difference between Judas and Peter was grace, faith, and Christ. And that was more than enough. Is it enough for you? Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close. Heavenly Father, we do love Peter. And we do, or we don't love Judas. And often we fail to see that we're just like them both. Help us understand the difference between them is not in in ourselves, in our own ability, our own strength, our own wisdom, but that's in Christ, and Christ is in us. And that makes all the difference. Father, help us to examine our hearts. Help us to see if Christ is there. Do this for us. As we prepare to come to your table, do this for us. In Jesus' name, amen. We have a uh, song and we'll take the offering now.